Hey, good morning, y'all. I'm, uh, my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff here at my church, and uh, we are in week uh, six of a series, What Every Christian Ought to Know. And again, I say this every week, it's not everything that we ought to know, but it's what every Christian ought to know. Walking through about 10 or 11 of those things. And last week, the Lord clearly used Richard to walk us through how to understand and, and how to handle temptation. And this week, we're going to open up a, a, what I feel like is a huge conversation, and it's the idea that every Christian ought to know the character and the attributes of God. This morning, I want us to, we got to get a, a right image, a right picture of who God is. First things first, though, we really also have to understand who we are. I want us to right-size God, but we got to have a right picture of who we are too and the message is about God but I want to run down a rabbit trail about us for 60 seconds or so Genesis 126 and I hope everybody has a worship guide if you have a worship guide some of these passages are in there and then it'll also be up on the screen and so Genesis 126 says so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him and 217 says but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat you're made in my image, God said, but, but don't eat. I'm telling you, don't eat from this tree. But then the serpent deceived her in, in chapter 3 and said, so, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her spineless husband who was with her and he ate. He, parenthetically, I added spineless. And then, and then Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's not painting the best picture of who we are. And then in Romans 5, the text says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through that sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we're created in the image of God, and Adam and Eve messed it up for all of us, and we are held guilty for what happened in that garden. We're held guilty because of that. And so there's a snapshot of me and you, and y'all take that little snapshot of me and you, set it up on a shelf for a minute, we're going to come back to that. Because you might be sitting there thinking, well, um, that we're born good, man and women, that mankind is born good, or maybe even that man is born neutral. Both of those are absolute heresy. Both of those are incorrect. And they've been condemned as heresy for 2,000 years. Take that picture of us, put it on a shelf for just a second, and let's talk about God. Let's talk about who He is, His character, and His attributes. First, I want to walk through a little bit of His character. And a few weeks ago, I don't know, three or four weeks ago maybe, I gave you all an image of God as being above the arch. Somebody used that language with me like 10 years ago, and I love it. And we should have this, this picture up on the screen, and this is the core of his character. Uh, it, it, it's rooted in the idea that he transcends everything. He is beyond everything, beyond time, beyond space, beyond matter, just above everything, and he's the, he's the starting point of the gospel 
And if we're not clear on this, we will never understand his gospel. So we've got to get clear on that first. Now, obviously, we live in a, in a world that has a very jacked-up understanding of God. And I've had conversa- lots of conversations with folks about the gospel or about Christianity or about just religion in general, and, and they, they would say, well, you know, you take all that junk. I don't even believe in God. And whenever they, whenever they say that, I ask them, well, well, what kind of a God is it that you don't believe in? And most of the time they're going to say some old, gray-headed, long-bearded man sitting up in the sky who's waiting on me to mess up so he can lay the hammer down on me. That's the image. If they have any image of God, that's very much the image that the world says. And I said to him, or I'll say to them, well, I don't believe in that God either. But let me tell you about the God that I do believe in. And so here's the question. What are you going to say at that point? If you're in this conversation, what are you going to say? Who is the God that you believe in? And you may be sitting here today and you may not even believe in God, and that's okay for the, for the, for the time being. And amidst all the, the unfathomable characteristics of God, how do you begin to describe him to somebody that's standing in front of you? Let's look at Psalm 95 in verse 3. And the text says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now, his attributes, they work together to make him a great king above all. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. So all of his attributes, all of them, and there are many, they flow from that great love. They all come together in that great love. Psalm 17, David said, Because of God's steadfast love, he's the shadow where I hide. In Isaiah 33, he's the mountain where I run and I can take refuge. He's the living water in the Gospel of John in chapter 7. He's the living water and he's the fountain that I drink from. He's the king. He's the king. His love is woven through the tapestry of his nature. His love is, just permeates everything about who he is. And he is the king of my heart. And he, he wants to be the king of your heart as we sit here today. And so I want to give you a statement that I believe sums up the essentials that we ought to know and that we ought to understand in order to understand the gospel. And here it goes. God is the infinitely good holy, just, and gracious creator of the world. He is the infinitely good, holy, just, and gracious creator of all things. These attributes, his goodness, his holiness, his justness or his justice, and his grace, they're all infused with his love. These four, his goodness, his holiness, his justness, and his grace, that's where I want us to land today. And if we can get our arms around that, those four attributes of God, hopefully we can begin to see him a little better than we did when we got up this morning. So first is we'll talk through his goodness. He is good. Psalm 119.68 says it very matter-of-factly. You are good and do good. You are good and do good. It's a a declarative statement about his nature. He is good. And because he's good... He does good. His goodness inclines him to be kind 
and generous with his creation. His goodness is infinite, it is eternal, and it is unchanging. God is just as good today as he was yesterday. He's just as good today as he was 10,000 years ago, and as good as he's going to be 10,000 years from now. He reigns on the just and the unjust. He shines his, his sun on the good and the bad. Love, mercy, faithfulness, loving kindness, they all, all of that make up his goodness. And he is all of those things infinitely. It's impossible for God to be half anything. So when I say that he is good, he's completely good. When I say that he is good, he is infinitely good. It's in your worship, God. He is infinitely good. Y'all, we can say that the sun is bright, but the sun's not infinitely bright because it doesn't have all the brightness that there is. When I say that God has a kind heart, I mean that that he has a heart that is infinitely kind because there is no boundary to his kindness. Exodus 34. Moses is on the mountain. In anger, he had just busted and broken the two tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them, and God hollers at him to come back up there. And, and here's what Exodus 34, starting in verse 6, here's what it says. It says, The Lord, and when you see Lord in your Bible in all capitals, his personal name is behind that text. There's lots of names and descriptions for God in the, in the Scriptures, but when you see it written that way in your Bible, His personal name, Yahweh, is behind that. So it says, The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that steadfast love is uh, it's, it's, it's covenantal love. It's the kind of love that says, I signed a contract with you. It's a covenant. So he says, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And that thousands is for thousands of generations. Whatever he is, he is perfect in it. He's perfectly kind. He's perfectly faithful. He's perfectly merciful. He's perfectly patient. So his goodness is perfect goodness. Well, that'll beg the question, how do, how do you and I respond to that goodness? And I'm going to say we give him props. We consistently credit God as the source of everything good that's in us, everything that's good around us. When something good happens, you thank him. G.K. Chesterton, who is a, an English writer and, and theologian, um, he said one time, he said, the loneliest moment for an atheist is when he's filled up with gratitude and he ain't got nobody to thank. We have somebody to thank. Express gratitude to God for the good that's in you and around you. When somebody compliments you, point them to the goodness of God, but you also, you can't get carried away with that. And after church, of, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, probably a friend of mine who I've known since I was 12 or 13 years old, he came up to me and he said, he said, that was a good message, preacher man. I don't know why they, they call preachers preacher man. I mean, I don't call my plumber plumber man and my electrician, you know, electric man. But people say that all the time. That was a pretty good message, preacher man. And I said, like, I don't even know how I said it, but I said, it was all God. And he put his arm around me and he said, well, it wasn't that good. And, here, and here, here's the reality, though. Anything that is good in me and anything that is good in you, any spark of goodness, it comes from God. So point 
to that. When things go well at work, acknowledge the Lord to you, the people that you work with. When things go well at home in this area of life or in, in that area of life, you speak about the goodness of God to your family and to your friends and to, the, to, to your neighbors because He is so good. So His goodness is number one. And number two is His holiness. Attribute number two, His holiness. He's holy. Exodus 14 records God uh, splitting the Red Sea. It's like my favorite part of my favorite song. When, when, when uh, no longer a slave, when, when he says, uh, the song says he split the sea so I could walk right through it. I just love the image that that paints. In Exodus 14, God split the sea so that Israel could walk through it. The Egyptians were chasing them. And Exodus 15 is right after that. You know, 15 comes after 14. And so they're on the other side. The sea swallowed up the Egyptians. They're safely on the other side. Israel is. And what do they do? They're singing and they're praising God, the God that delivered them. And verse 11 says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? And Isaiah in chapter 6 in verse 3, Isaiah in his prophecy, he's got a vision, having a vision of the Lord. And he says, not once, not twice, but three times, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then he goes on in chapter 43 in, uh, in verse 15, he says, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. Now, I want to tell you this. First of all, we're talking about God's holiness. I feel completely, completely inadequate to even begin to speak about God's holiness. And it's kind of like Leonardo da Vinci when he painted the painting The Last Supper, which is on the screen. He said this about that painting. He said he really didn't have a problem with much of it. You know, Leonardo da Vinci is a pretty talented artist. He said, I didn't have that much trouble with it. But when I got to the faces of the guys, I struggled a little bit. And he said... Uh, and when he got to, to, to Christ's face, he said, there's no use. I, I, I can't, I'm too inadequate. I can't even begin to, to paint him. And then he just said, you know what? I got to do it. I got to do it. And he, just, and he just did it. And that's like, I feel that way when I'm trying to explain and talk about the holiness of God. So however this goes the next two or three minutes, however it is that I explain his holiness, just know that it will be, it will be inadequate. Okay, but here goes. To be holy is to be distinct. It's to be separate, to be all in a class of your own. And the primary meaning of the word, the Hebrew word, is, is separate. The ancient word meant to cut or to separate. And a better description may even be a cut above, a cut above the rest. Like, like when we find a, a, a suit or a pair of shoes or a dress or a shirt or something, that is, has superior excellence, we say that that's a cut above the rest. And so this means that, that the one who is holy is uniquely holy with no rivals and no competition. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that He is transcendentally, say that with me, transcendentally separate. He is beyond and above and beyond everything. He's so far above and beyond me and you that sometimes he may even seem foreign to us. To be holy is to be other. It is to be, um, to be different in a, in a special way. 
to be holy is to be morally pure. For God to be holy is for Him to be holy in relation to every other attribute that He contains. It's almost wrong for me to have, to like put holiness in this list of attributes because He's really holy. It is really in relation to all of His attributes. His love is holy love. His goodness is holy goodness. His his justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy and so on. So here's the deal. He is perfectly unique. He is completely separate and absolutely pure. He's perfectly unique. He's completely separate and He is absolutely pure. He is unlike us. He's incomparable and He is unique. He is separate from us. In other words, He's above the arch. The picture I just painted is kind of that picture of Him above the arch. And yes, me and you are made in His image. And so in some sense, we are a reflection of Him. There's nothing wrong in God, though. And He is absolutely pure. Everything God is and everything that God does is completely right. So what all of that stirred in a bucket means that He is holy. So number one, He's good. Number two, He's holy. And number three, He's just. He is just. Proverbs 17.15 says this, and it's weird because it says it a little like a little backwards almost. But it says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. That verse is so key for us to understand the gospel, and here's why. It makes it clear that God is a good judge. And as a good judge, God justifies the innocent and He condemns the guilty. And as a good judge, he's outraged by injustice. He detests it. He hates it. The text right there says it. And so he detests those that say to the guilty, you're innocent, and those that say to the innocent, you're guilty. He says it's an abomination to God because he is a good judge. And like any good judge, he's going to say to the guilty, you're guilty, and he's going to say to the innocent, you're acquitted. He's a perfect, holy just judge and that's tough because all of us have sinned and all of us have sinned against God and are guilty before him so follow this God himself says to acquit the guilty in other words if you say to the guilty that you're innocent then you are an abomination to the Lord and that ain't good and that begs this question how then can God acquit the guilty Because as soon as he does, he's an abomination to himself. How can God look at guilty sinners, me and you? How can he look at us? Y'all do know he looks at you. How can he look at us, guilty sinners, and declare that you're acquitted and remain just? That is the ultimate question of all of the Scripture from page 1 to the end. Because if there was a judge in a courtroom who knowingly said to a guilty murderer, you're acquitted, then we throw him off the bench. Well, why would we throw him off the bench? Because he's not just. Because he's not right. Do do you see this? God's forgiveness of sinners is a threat to his character. If God just overlooks the sin, he says, you know what, you know what, Lynn, don't worry about it. It's all good. Don't worry about it. If God just overlooks sin, 
his justice and his holiness are completely compromised. And he's no longer God. John Stott, who's another theologian, he said this, Forgiveness of sins is for God the profoundest of problems. What a great quote. Forgiveness of sins for God is the profoundest of problems. Doesn't, but, but doesn't God acquit us and free us when we're saved? Isn't that kind of what happens? So I ask you again, how can God look at guilty sinners, me and you, and say innocent and still be just? I'm going to come back to that because that's a tough problem. So he, but he is good and he is holy and he is just. And I coined a phrase last week that I'm going to use again a little embarrassingly, but I'm going to use it again, thank God for buts in the Bible. Because we know that sin has to be punished. It does. It has to be punished. But thank the Lord that He shows us grace. So lastly, He is gracious. And I want to try to tie these things up, this His goodness and His holiness and His justice. I want to tie that all together because they all crash together at the nail-scarred feet of grace. His holiness, His justice, all of that, it crashes together at the feet of grace. You are good, Psalm 119 says. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Isaiah 6 says. And just, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests both, Proverbs says. And this leads us to Titus 2.11, one of the simplest, clearest sentences in the Scripture. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So here's the question. How can a good, holy, just God save guilty, rebellious sinners who are due His judgment? Well, 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 why didn't He just forgive us? He's loving, isn't He? Can't He just say, I forgive you? He is loving. He's also not a liar. And He tells us, He says to the innocent, you're innocent. He says to the guilty, you're guilty. And He doesn't say to the guilty, you're innocent. He doesn't say to the innocent, you're guilty. So we all stand before Him guilty and deserving the payment for the sin, which is what? Eternal death and separation from Him. And that is bad, bad news for us. But then we also know that He loves us. Because love, the, the, the thread of love is woven through all of His attributes. And we know that He loves us. And He wants us to show, He wants to show us some unmerited favor. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Yeah, but He's just. And sin, y'all got to understand this, it has got to be paid for. It, it has to be. If He is just, it's got to be paid for. And so He must pour out that judgment upon our sin. Well, how do we reconcile that tension? It's a dilemma. How do we reconcile that? And we started off today with a quick lesson about our um, our nature, our fallen nature, our bent towards sin, the idea that every one of us have fallen short. And when we begin to understand the character of God and our sinfulness, our depravity, we really stop asking why God finds it so hard to forgive our sins, and we ought to be asking how He can even begin to find it possible to forgive our sins. Grace is the answer to that. Grace is the answer to the dilemma and the tension. Grace is the answer to the question that John, the statement that John Stott made. And here's what grace is. Grace is the unmerited, 
unwarranted, undeserved favor that we receive from the Lord and it fleshes itself out in the sufficiency of Christ. That's a long sentence. Grace is the unmerited, unwarranted, undeserved favor that we receive from the Lord and it fleshes itself out in the sufficiency of Christ. Here's what that means. We don't deserve it. We bring nothing to the table but the sin that makes it all necessary. You understand that? We bring nothing to the table. It's a gift from God and it plays itself out in Christ's cross with Him hanging on that cross. In his, the sufficiency of that sacrifice. We just celebrated that sacrament that is all about the sufficiency of the work that Christ did. And we live in a day, in a world, where there's tons of religions all over the place and many, many people believe that all of them at the end of the day lead to the same place. They, they all lead to the same place. That none is superior or inferior to any of the others. And the very idea that Jesus alone is the only way to restoration with a holy God, that is looked at as crazy, preposterous, narrow-minded. You're a lunatic if you say that. People would say, certainly you're not just saying that there is one way. But my aim this morning is to show you that once you and I understand who God is, the good holy, just, and gracious creator of the world. And once we understand who we are, men and women that were created by God in His image, but messed up by sin, having rebelled against Him, having separated from Him, and dead without Him. When we realized that Jesus alone, above and beyond and over every single person, Every Buddha, every Allah, every single philosophy and every single other religion, He alone is able to remove our sin and restore us to God. That is a fact. He alone, above all of that. And now the next two weeks, we're going to be walking through the, 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 the person and the work of Christ. The fact that He is unique in who He is and what He's done. And so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself other than to say this. He is 100% man. He is 100% God. And we're going to talk about that over the next two weeks, what that really means. But as, uh, as being 100% man and 100% God, He is the only perfect sacrifice to satisfy the penalty, the price of my sin, to satisfy the judgment that's due. And on the surface, it makes no sense that... that God would take the hit for us. Especially if we haven't really understood His character. Why in the world would He do it that way? I want to tell you a story that happened to me one time. And I got this from another guy. And I just wait, I, had, I was waiting for the opportunity to, to kind of go down this road with somebody. And I don't, I, don't, I don't get a whole lot of opportunity to witness to, to Jewish folks because they all sort of look at me as a traitor. Um, but I did have this opportunity, and I was at Starbucks with a friend of mine that's Jewish, and we were having coffee. And we were having a spiritually sort of conversation, and I was talking about the incarnation, about how God came as the person of Jesus. And he said, God would never do that. He'd never defile himself by becoming a man. He said to me, dude, you are nuts. That's just not true. He'd never do it. His character is too great. That's what he said. 
And I said to him, I agree that God's character absolutely is great, and that is exactly why he did come and walk among us as a man. And he looked at me with this deer-in-the-headlights sort of look, and he said, that makes no sense. What are you talking about? And I said to him, I said, let me tell you another story. I want to tell you a story about, uh, about me and a girl, a story about me and her name is Susan. And I love this girl. And I, wanted to, I was passionately, madly in love with Susan, and I wanted to marry her. And so when it came time for me to tell her how madly in love with her I was, do you think that I sent a friend to go tell her? Do you think I folded up a note and slid it across the room to tell her? No, no. Did I give it to a messenger to give to her? And he said, no, you, you need to be the one to tell her that you love her and to ask her to marry you. And I said exactly my point. I needed to go to her and tell her myself because in matters of love, one must go himself, right? And he said, yeah, right. And, and I said, that's how God shows us, showed us and shows us his goodness and his holiness and his justness and the grace of his character towards us. He has not ultimately sent this person or that person to tell us. He has not sent a message with a messenger to communicate his love to us. Instead, he has come himself. Because in matters of love, one must go himself. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sin. He himself bore our sin, my sin, your sin, in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It was by His wounds that we were healed. Y'all, grace was flowing off that tree that Christ hung on. Grace was flowing off that tree. God remains just because the penalty was satisfied. The sins, they were paid for. He died the death that I deserved to die. So the sin was paid for. The sacrifice was made. The lamb was slain. There was reconciliation. There was redemption. There was restoration. All of that as he bore our sins on that tree. We were reconciled. We were redeemed and we were, we were restored to a holy God. The relationship between God and a sinful man that was broken way, way back in that garden, it all was made right and reconciled as grace flowed off that cross. And y'all, we've talked today about the character... Uh, I want to call our worship team back up, uh, unless they're back here. No, they're not. We've talked today about the character and the attributes of God. But more important than that is that everything that makes God, God, implores Him to desperately want to save you. Do y'all get that? It is... It is all about his character, his desire to save you. Everything that makes him him makes him want to buy you back, to reconcile with you and to spend eternity with you. I want to kind of leave you with, with this statement. And I don't think, it, I think it's something that we haven't, maybe, maybe you haven't thought about. I never thought about it. But here it is. God wants to spend eternity with you as much as you want to spend eternity with Him. In fact, He may want to spend eternity with you more than you want to spend eternity with Him. And He found a way 
to solve the tension that we spoke about, and it's all about the cross of grace, and that's available to you right now. It's available to you right now. You can repent and you can believe today and He will save you. And if you've never done that before, I'm just consider it. Just consider it today. Y'all, if you would, close your eyes, bow your heads with me. If, if today is, is the day that you say, you know what, that grace that's one of your attributes, Lord, today is the day that I want to kind of accept that. I, I want, and I know, Lord, I've done some junk, some bad stuff in my life, and I understand that that grace is the way that you can remain just and, and that my sin is paid for. And, Lord, I want to repent. I want to forget about that, that my past. You don't have to hold on to your past. Lord, today is the day that I do believe that you came and that you saved me. And if you can say that today, and if you just said that today, we lift you up. The, the heavens are screaming their glory because another lost sinner has been found. So y'all can uh, open up your eyes and, and, and look up here. And here's the deal. If that happened to you today, there is nothing more glorious that could ever happen on the planet than one lost sinner bought back by that cross. And so if that happened to you today, I want you to grab that. And this is so mechanical. I want you to grab that connection card. I want you to let us know on there. And that little checkbox is right next to some real simple words. It says, I got saved. Check that box. And up under that is a box that says, I want to take the God plunge. Check that box too. Fill that connection card out. Let us know what happened to you today because we want to, and Richard taught about it, we want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. If that happened today and you want to pray with somebody, our prayer team is going to be back in the back. Uh, they would love to pray with you. And so just fill that stuff out, drop it in that offering bucket as it comes by. Uh, let me pray for us real quick. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for, <clears throat> for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your holiness. Um, Lord, we thank you for your presence in this place this morning. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.